So I've been really grateful the last two weeks for, for what the guys have shared. Um, Fudge had us in Acts chapter 8. Didn't you, Fudge? Yeah. It's Acts chapter 8. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, David um, then brought us to Romans 12 uh, last Sunday. And then I, to, to this morning, I want, I'm wanting us to go back one chapter from where Fudge had us in uh, Acts chapter 7. And so for those, for those that are regular, you'll know that I, uh, that I said last week, I reminded you at the weekend, or a couple of days ago, this is where we, where we were going this morning, uh, to look at, the, look at the person of Stephen, but actually to look at the point that Stephen was making in, his, uh, in the speech that he made to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. I wanted you to read it because we don't have time this morning to read all, what is it, 60 verses this morning. Um, but there's a few things that I want to highlight along the way that I think would be really good for us uh, to hear together this morning. Can I pray? Um, Father, I thank you for, um, for these moments. And God, I just pray as we've come to that place of been in that place of worship, of song worship, and uh, we've, we've sang songs to remind us of your, of your greatness, to remind us of your majesty, to remind us of your worth, that you're worthy. And uh, as we approach your word, as we continue to, to pursue you, as we continue to long to encounter you face to face, would you allow your your presence just to continue to brood over us. Holy Spirit, would you come and, and bring these words to life? Holy Spirit, would you just come and activate something within our hearts, within our minds as we, as we come uh, before your word? And come and see what it is that you maybe want to say to each one of us. What do you want to say to us corporately and maybe what do you want to say to us individually this morning as well? So God, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for your presence. All I need is you. And so we are waiting here for you. Holy Spirit, come and anoint, come and fill, come and empower your word in Jesus' name. We're introduced to to Stephen. I, as I've um, engaged uh, in these in Acts chapter six and seven. And trying to trying to learn, trying to pick up what it is that Stephen is wanting to teach us. What is it that we can even learn just from the snippet that we have of Stephen? Um, I love it that we we get we could get to know him a bit better. He's a fascinating character, and I know when it comes to the Book of Acts, we uh, we love when we get to the story of 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 Paul. Saul on the road to Damascus who encounters who encounters Jesus and his life is changed and and he takes the gospel into places they never thought that it would go. But for me, if I can just lay my cards on the table at the beginning, for me it's Stephen. It's the story of Stephen that is the hinge of the early church. It's it's the story of Stephen. It's this moment. It's Acts chapter seven that I think is the hinge moment, the hinge point, the hinge story of the early church. 
I've loved watching uh, how we are introduced to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And so if you are in Acts chapter 7, just uh, flick over left for a moment. And you'll see how we're, how we're introduced to him, those in Acts chapter 6, verse, um, verse 5, verse 4, and verse 3, 4, and 5, and then of verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. Here's a man who is full. He is full. He's full of the Spirit. He is full of wisdom. He is full of faith. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of God's grace. He is full of power. But we're introduced to Stephen because there is an issue because at, with the rate of the, with the rate of the disciples that are increasing, the minorities are are being forgotten. The minorities are being left out. The Grecian Jews. These, these minority group of Hebrew of, of widows are being overlooked at the expense of the majority, the, the Hebraic Jews. And so the apostles, they don't want to neglect the preaching of the word in order to wait on tables. And so they go looking for men that are full of faith, that are full of wisdom, that are full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is the Stephen is the head man. Out of the seven, Stephen is top of the list, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And I love how we are introduced to him as one who is waiting on tables. The Greek word for waiting on tables is diakoni. Probably making a mess of that nano, aren't I? The Greek. But uh, it's, it's, it's really just to serve. One who is a servant. One who is coming to care for someone else's needs. And that's what Stephen, Stephen was. He was just this incredible Holy Spirit-filled servant that was caring for the needs of everyone. And I love how Stephen didn't need the, the physical platform. He didn't need to be the one standing at the front preaching the word, preaching the message. Stephen was so full, I believe, that he just, it just, he just overflowed in every environment that he found himself in. And so whether it was waiting at the tables with this minority group of poor widows or whether it was later on as we see him arguing at the synagogue of the freedmen, these, these, these men were, these, these were clever men, full of understanding, full of wisdom, studied, studied the scriptures, studied the Torah for, for years and, and Stephen finds himself even in the midst of this in the midst of this group of people uh, bringing a revelation of who Jesus was. They could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit by whom Stephen spoke. And so I love what spirit-filled people look like. I love where Fudge brought us a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 8, completely uh, debunked every myth of what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. And how we as a church, how we today unashamedly need to be pursuing a fullness, a fullness of the Spirit. How we need it, we're desperate for it. And I love how it looks in the life of Stephen. Spirit-filled people serving the poor. Spirit-filled man serving the poor. Spirit-filled providing hospitality. Spirit-filled standing alongside the minorities. 
spirit-filled can take on all sorts of forms and Stephen found anywhere to be his platform. And so wherever we find ourselves today, whether it is happens to be on the, at, at the front, on the stage, or whether it happens to be in the serving of tables, whether it happens to be in the waiting on the minorities, providing hospitality for the whosoever, we need spirit-filled people that are, that are, that are going to do that. Stephen shows us that. They couldn't stand against his wisdom. The spirit, I believe, was just so alive, so alive in, in him. We see him engaging with people right across the spectrum. And so whether it was the religious elite full of education and pomp or whether it was, as I've already said, these poor widows that found themselves being neglected even at the the distribution, the daily distribution of food. And people just didn't know what to do with Stephen. And we find ourselves often in that place, people filled with the Spirit, people longing to be full of faith, to be full of God's grace, to be full of power, often find themselves misunderstood even by those seemingly their own. And it was the Jews that just couldn't understand him. It was, it was his own that couldn't, that couldn't work out what it was that he was saying. And so they began, to, they began to, to stir up the people. They began to persuade men to, to tell lies about Stephen. And in verse 11 of chapter 6, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they did the same with Jesus. So just like they did with Jesus, they did the same stuff up. They stirred up the crowd so that the crowd would go against him, that the crowd would turn their back on this message, on this revolutionary story. And how often we see, we see that happening in, throughout the scriptures and we still see it, I think, happening today. And so as we make our way into Acts I want you to recognize Acts chapter 6, verse 11, what the accusation was that Stephen was addressing when we get to Acts chapter 7. So the accusation is that you have, you have spoke words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. That's the accusation. In Acts chapter 7, we have the high priest, uh, Stephen, has been brought in. And we have this moment, we have this moment, can't ignore it. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This guy's incredible. And so the high priest brings him in and before all of the, the religious elite, before all of these, um, before all of this group of people, elders, high priests, teachers of the law, he's asked this question, are these charges true? Is it true what the crowd has began to say about you, that you've spoken words against Moses and against God. And I find it, I find it amusing this week to recognize that actually Stephen doesn't even answer the question. Have you spoke words of blasphemy against Moses and against God? And he just begins to preach. He just begins, brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So for me, as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, I think that Stephen knows that this is the end. I think Stephen knows in his heart. I think he knows what he is about to speak, what he is about to bring. He has to be aware of the offense that is going to cause it. He has to be aware of how unsettled he is going to make these people. And so he doesn't even defend himself. He doesn't even apologize. He just begins to proclaim the Christian faith. I'm just so attracted to that because often we find ourselves in a position of on the defense. Often we find ourselves in a position of having to apologize for but here is, here is Stephen as he's brought before the, the crowd to give, a, to give a defense, to give an apology for what you've said and what you've done. He just begins to proclaim the Christian message. He begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And I've just been so struck by this story. I feel like I've read this story in a way that I've never read it before this week. Because I think that as the story, Stephen begins to tell them the story of Israel. So he's not making a defense. He's not making an apology. He's just proclaiming the story. But I think it's really important for us to hear that I think that Stephen is making his point. He's making the point that he wants to make using this history of Israel. The point that Stephen wants to make to the teachers of the law, to the elders and to the high priests is using the history of Israel. And if I can push it even further than that, I think that Stephen is making the point that he wants to make by highlighting the stories that they would rather forget. And so the stories that Stephen brings these people to and he brings us to this morning, I think are the stories that these Jewish people, that these Israelites would rather, would rather forget. And so I think back in the first century and I think it's the same thing today in telling a story in, in providing a narrative, listeners find themselves somewhere in it. And so that was going on in this first century context, that when a story was told, when a narrative was told, that the listeners would find themselves somewhere in the story. And so religious people, the Sanhedrin, these religious people, usually, and I can't be too critical because I often do the same, when it comes to the, a narrative being told, a story being shared, the place that I find myself in this story is one who is vindicated by God. And so the religious people in the telling of this story would have found themselves in as those vindicated by God, but I think the whole way along, Stephen is saying no. He's saying no, you are the ones that continue to reject what God is saying and reject what God is doing. You're the ones who've continued to reject. And so he's been asked about Moses. He's been asked about, the, is the accusation that you've spoken against Moses and against God true? But he goes right back to the story of Abraham. It's almost like he's completely ignored the accusation. And he goes, to this, he goes back to the story of Abraham, and I think from the very beginning of his speech, from his closing remarks before, before he dies a cruel death, he is reminding us, he is reminding them that it's all about grace. He is reminding th these Jewish people that it's all grace. 
because Abraham was called outside of the land. Abraham was called outside of the tribe. And so we send this to these people who have, who have made it all about their tribe. They've made it all about their land. But Stephen is going back and saying, remember, it was Abraham was called outside of the land. Abraham was called outside of the tribe. And this becomes a theme, I think. If you want to take note of it, you don't have to take a physical note, but take note the whole way through Acts chapter 7. It feels like the, the, those on the outside are the ones that God will call. It's those that are on the outside that God seems to use. And so he is, he's, he's, he's taking them to the story that, that reminds them that it's all about grace because Abraham was outside of the land. He takes us, if you want to follow along, we're, we're just going to try and make our way through this as, as quickly as possible. He gets to the story of, of circumcision uh, we'll move on past that. I'd rather not share about that. Uh, it gets to verse 9, Acts chapter 7, verse 9, and, and he's saying here that the patriarchs, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. And again, I think Stephen is being intentional with the language that he's using here. He's saying to these people, Israel, the Israelites, those representing Israel, were jealous of Joseph. Those representing Israel show them, it shows Israel as being against the person that God has chosen. Joseph, God was with Joseph. He was rescued. He was given wisdom and was able to gain goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so he was made ruler over Egypt and all his palace. But I think, as, I think what Stephen begins to do He's wanting, he's wanting them to find themselves in the story as the ones who have rejected God, who are the ones who have rejected the, the thing that he is doing, the, the one that he has chosen. And so as he presents the patriarchs as being jealous of Joseph, he is showing them as ones who are representing Israel and being against the person that God has chosen. And I think already the Sanhedrin is beginning to shuffle on their seats, beginning to get uncomfortable with where Stephen is going here, with what Stephen is bringing to them. Acts chapter 5 tells us that uses this same language because of envy, because of jealousy. The same thing was said about, about Jesus. They knew that Jesus was being brought to the cross because of envy, because of jealousy. And here it's the patriarchs that are shown to be jealous of the one that God has chosen, the new thing that God is doing. I'm aware that there's more that we could say about Abraham. There's more that we could say about the covenant of circumcision. There's more that we can say about the story of Joseph. But I want to try and get through this, this chapter if we can. And eventually he, makes his, he gets to Moses. He gets to Moses, and there's, there's quite a bit that he wants to say about Moses. But look at verse 21. I want you to keep seeing this theme throughout Stephen's speech, because I, I, I find myself just so convinced of, its, of how important this is when he was placed outside. 
And so, the, again, to remind you, the accusation, what they're accusing Stephen of is speaking words against God, but also against Moses. And so begins to tell the story of Moses. And I think that he's beginning to tell them the things about Moses that they would rather forget. Moses was placed outside. He was placed outside and he was educated. He was trained by the Egyptians. By those that were the other. Those that were the enemy. Moses, that's where Moses was trained. That's where Moses was educated. And we're reminded in the story of Moses. Stephen, I think, is reminding us that God used Moses even though he was trained and educated by the Egyptians. God used Moses even though he was placed outside. So verse 20 tells us that he was no ordinary child. He was placed outside and he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And so keep following here with me these few verses. What Stephen is provoking as he reminds them of the, the, their story. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. God's people, and that's what Stephen is trying to show them. You were opposed. God's people. God's people were opposed to what he was trying to do and who he was trying to use. And so we have, let me read from verse 23, just so that you know what, the story that Stephen is telling. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. So he came from outside and came in to his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? Verse 27, But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Again, I think this is important. Because here is two Israelites who were fighting, and so the, the, one, the one who began to speak against Moses was the person representing Israel. And so the person representing Israel pushed Moses aside. I'm convinced it's very intentional what Stephen is doing. He is showing that he, as they are trying to find themselves in the story, they usually try to find themselves as the one vindicated by God. But here Stephen is trying to show the one that represents you is the one that pushed Moses aside. Is the one that pushed the one that God was trying to use to the side. And as Moses' story goes on, 40 years had passed, Moses finds himself out in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. When he seen the flames of the burning bush, he went to look more closely and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. And verse 33 says, The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. And again, I, I think that this is maybe some of the story that they would rather ignore. 
Because here is a people who have made it all about their land. They've made it all about their interpretation of the Torah. They've made it all about their, uh, they've made it all about their territory. They've made it all about the temple, as we will go on and see in a few minutes. But they made it about their land, and, and, and as Stephen tells the story, he is reminding them that the holy ground is outside of the holy land. And it reminds us that where the Lord is, what's that song? The Lord is here and where he is, is holy. He's trying to show them that it wasn't, it wasn't exclusive to their land. It wasn't exclusive to their tribe. It wasn't exclusive to their interpretation of the Torah. The holy ground is outside of the holy land. The one that God wants to use and wants to call is, has been placed outside and he has brought him in. Verse 35, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected. Verse 39, and he's really beginning to, to bring home his point. Our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So as I'm reading through this over this week, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, where, where are these, where is the Sanhedrin? Where are these teachers of the law? Where are these religious elite finding themselves in the story now? Because I believe that Stephen is beginning to show them that your religion has become your idol. Your religion has become your idol. Something else has taken the place of God. And so whether it, again, whether it's, the, whether it's your land, whether it's, whether it's your understanding of the Torah, whether it is your, your land, that has taken the place of God, that has taken the place of, of worshiping him and worshiping him only, responding to the new thing that he wants to do, responding to the new way that he wants to speak and you're missing it because your religion and all of its trappings has become your idol. And I'm convinced at this stage, these guys were getting, these guys were getting pretty cross. What else, where else had their religion, their religious ideas, their religious ideals showed that maybe had, had truly become an idol? And I think he brings up the next point as he goes to the story of David. In verse 44, he says that our forefathers had the temple, had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. He went with them. The presence of the Lord went with them wherever they went. But we're told of David that David wanted, David asked that he might provide a dwelling place dwelling place for, the, for God and it was Solomon who built the house but then Stephen says however the most high does not live in houses made by men and so you thought that it had to be in a particular place you thought that it had to be through a particular person you thought that it had to be in a particular place but Stephen is saying no to all of that He's saying no to the particular person. He's saying no to the particular doctrine. He's saying no to the particular person. No to the particular place. See, that it was David that, that asked. God never asked for the temple to be built. 
my personal my personal view is that God he's that good that he that he accommodated David's desire to build him a home. But that's not where he lives. He does not live in houses made by men. His power and his presence operates outside of the temple. There's wonderful things happen inside it. But we want to make sure that it spills out, that it overflows outside of the temple. And so just in case there was any doubt about where Stephen was locating these people in the story, read verse 51. He brings it home in these closing remarks. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. I said to Judith last night, I have never seen or experienced anger to the level that somebody has gnashed their teeth. How angry, how angry had these men got upon what Stephen was saying. Something that he was doing that caused such a strong reaction. And I think that Stephen has been trying to show them that God used and called those outside of their traditions. He called and used those that were outside of their interpretation of the Torah. He calls and uses those that are outside of the particular place. Calls and uses those that are outside of the particular place. The land. So for me, I just, I just loved coming to this story because I found myself just wrestling through some of this. Because I think the same thing applies for us today. We quote Isaiah 43, verse 9, Behold, behold, ready yourself, prepare for the new thing that I'm about to do. And, and we, love this, we, love to, we love to bring that message at the new year. We love to bring that message in a new season. But actually, we need to acknowledge the implications of a new thing. Because the new thing might be something outside of our understanding. The new thing might be something outside of what we would have ever expected or what we would ever have understood. And I, I know for me, I just want to be in that place where it would never be said of me that you, you always resist the Holy Spirit because it fell outside of what you expected, because it fell outside of what you always thought, that you end up missing the new thing. You end up missing the chosen thing. You may end up missing the chosen one, rejecting the new thing, rejecting the, the one that God has chosen. And so these people were furious. They're furious because Stephen is telling them to let go of the things that they thought were of most importance. That's why they were so mad. That's why they were so angry. They built, they built their whole lives. They built their whole understanding of God on the very thing that Stephen was telling them to now let go of. If you're trying to be anyway sympathetic towards these people, you can maybe understand a wee bit of how that would have shook their world. And Stephen is telling them to let go of the very things that were, they thought were important. And so I think there's some takeaways from that for us. That in, that in your own quiet place, that in conversation with your partner, with your friend or whoever, that you begin to wrestle through some of that. We spent a few weeks back talking about authentic faith. 
being real and being honest. Job was commended by God because he was honest and he was straight. He was straight. He, he, was, he let it all out. And he was commended for that. So I'd encourage you to keep wrestling. I'd encourage you to, to keep having those conversations that you're not holding too tightly to things that were never of that much importance anyway. Holding on to things that you thought were so important that you miss what he wants to do, that you actually end up resisting the Holy Spirit. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. What a moment. He looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so last night, as I was, as I was just reading through this one more time, I felt like I'd never seen that before. I've become so, I think I've become so accustomed to every time it mentions Jesus on the right hand of God that he's sitting. He's ascended. And it's been, oh, it's, it's finished. The work has been finished. It's accomplished. And he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. But there's something about this moment that I, I don't know if I can even fully articulate it, but there's something, I think, beautiful about Jesus standing. As Stephen takes this beating as he takes this pounding as one more stone begins to be thrown at him he looks and he sees Jesus standing and I don't know whether it's a picture just of his involvement he's moved from that place of seat, sitting because he's just involved in this the one whose face shone like an angel the one who has access to to this revelation because he's so full of the spirit. He's so full of God's grace and God's power that Jesus just can't help but get himself involved. And maybe that's not the right way to interpret that, but I, as I read that last night, I just thought, oh, Jesus, you're standing, you're standing. Maybe you're standing just to welcome him. Maybe you're just preparing for, for him to make his way to glory, a hero, a martyr, one who would, who would just stand and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is standing because he's involved. He's standing, I'm guessing, to welcome. And as beautiful as that is, the ugliness of religion is, is painted on the, on the other side. When religion and all its trappings cause us to stick our fingers in our ears. And that's what they did. They covered their ears, yelled at the top of their voices and dragged them out of the city and killed them. And religion and all our ideas and all our preferences and all our prejudices cause us to stick our fingers in our ears and say, no change. This is the way it's always been done. Just keep it the way it is. We don't want to hear that it could come from the outside. We don't want to hear that it could come in a way that could unsettle, in a way that it could upset. We don't want to hear it, so we stick our fingers in our ears and just yell. Yelling that we don't want change. Yelling that this is the way that it's always been. Let's just keep it the way it is. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin 
against them. And I'm sure you're aware, you don't have to, our news headlines don't have to take, it doesn't take too long before we see some headline of some attack or some bomb that's went off somewhere. Go through the, the pages of history, you'll see that every religion has its martyrs. Every religion has its martyrs, but none of them. None of them have those that pray for the forgiveness of those that are killing them. And he's so full, he's so full of the Spirit, he's so full of God's grace and God's power that in his life he looked just like Jesus. And in his death he looked just like Jesus. And in the same way that Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen prays the same prayer. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And as I finish, that has become a powerful moment for me this week. A place of just worship and praying. I realized that, that what Stephen was saying all along here to these people was, you are wrong. You've got it wrong. You've messed it up. You've rejected Jesus. You've turned your back on him. You've rejected. You've resisted. You're wrong. But I love you but I love you and I want you to experience his forgiveness. And as I caught that at the end of Stephen's story this week, I've asked myself the question, could I do the same? And I'm not even saying that, I'm not even talking about the thought of losing my life. I'm just asking the question to those that, that I believe that are wrong, to those that have rejected Jesus, to those that have turned their back on him, to those that ha have missed it, Am I able to still say, but I love you and I want you to experience his forgiveness? To those that are on the outside, to those that are on the outside of our, our understanding of the political world, outside of our understanding of sexuality, outside of our whatever it is, to those that are on the outside, are we willing to say, you've missed it? You've missed it, you've rejected it. You've turned your back on it, but I love you and I want you to experience, I want you to experience his forgiveness. And I wonder, we're told that the witnesses, that the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so Saul stood there. Saul was standing there as, as Stephen cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And part of me wonders, what was Paul thinking as he journeyed down that road? I wonder, was, was that part of his, of his thinking? Did he hear all that Stephen had to say and as he made his way on the road to Damascus, did he begin to, did he begin to think about what he'd seen in Stephen? Did he begin to think who would give, who would give, their, who would give up their lives if it wasn't true? Who would give up their lives if they hadn't encountered such love and such grace and such forgiveness? I wonder, was he thinking about that along the road? And so I, I've, I've just wanted to, to go through that chapter. I've just found myself in it the last couple of weeks. And so I don't know what else I had to offer apart from bringing some of that stuff that I've been journeying with and I, and I hope there's been something that's been informative but I hope, more than anything I hope there's been something that is transformative something that 
that you can take away. Often I find it hard to, to land to land a sermon. It's definitely not a strength because often we want to get the application but there's times where I think you just need to go and, and wrestle. I think you just need to go and, and ask yourselves those questions. What is it that I'm holding on to? What is it that I've placed such importance and such a priority on that I've that I potentially miss the new thing that he wants to do, the one that he wants to choose. And so Father, I just ask that you that you help us, God. We long for long to be ones that are full of the Holy Spirit. As we watch, as we read through the stories in the book of Acts, as we read through the stories throughout history, God, it's those that are full of the Holy Spirit, those that are sensitive to what you're saying, sensitive to what you're doing, full of boldness and courage. And God, it's, it's them that, that don't miss what you want to do. It's those that, that, that whose ears are unblocked to what you're, to what you're saying. Father, I just acknowledge that you're always at work. You're always doing something. And God, I pray that we never box you in, that it has to be done a certain way in a certain place by a certain person. And so Holy Spirit, we just pray you would come and fill us with your grace, fill us with your power, with your wisdom. That you would help us to look more and more like Jesus. We want to make much of Jesus. We want to proclaim him and his kindness and his generosity in every conversation, in every action, in every deed. But in every moment we find, a, we find every conversation, every place that we are, where our job brings us, influence brings us that as we walk in your fullness that everywhere is a platform to proclaim the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus thank you Lord